This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the Citymetric podcast. I'm Barbara. And I'm John. And this week we're going to be talking about something that will kill us all if we don't have enough of it. Or if we have too much. The Nabataeans developed this elaborate architecture, it's all Roman-inspired, and they found ways in which to source water in the middle of the desert, and they ultimately ran out of water, and they all died. If that's not an armed conflict over resources, then I don't know what words mean. Sana'a, I think, in Yemen is perilously close to running out of groundwater. I think their water table drops by two meters a year, which is really rapid. We're talking next year when they run out of groundwater. So City Metric spends a lot of time writing about infrastructure. We write about roads, we write about trains, we write about power infrastructure and broadband and so on, all of which are pretty essential for modern life. But there's one thing that's even more fundamental than that, which is not just essential for modern life, it's essential for all life, which is water supplies. If you don't have a decent water supply, you don't have a civilization. Yeah, and I think that because we have such easy access to water in our country, I mean, Technically, companies aren't even supposed to shut off your water supply, even if you're behind on bills. It's kind of that central a human right that it's easy to forget that actually when water starts running dry, things can get very fraught. And in a city, in a, city, in a kind of big group of people, you need vast quantities of it all the time. And if that stops working, then you have a real problem. Hmm. It's even more fundamental than that, I think. If you, I'm going to get really pretentious now, as is my way, but if you kind of look back to, to ancient history... The earliest urban civilizations are all in river valleys. You've got the e- Egypt and the Nile. You've got um, the early Indian civilizations in the Indus. Mm-hmm. You've got the Chinese civilization in the Yellow River. The, the, the Fertile Crescent in, in Mesopotamia, I mean, the clue is in the name. Without a decent water supply to irrigate your crops and grow enough food, you don't get the kind of surplus that will support anyone to do any job but, but farming. Without water, you can't have cities. Yeah, and I think that we sort of outsource some of that now. So, I mean, I think around the world, 70% of the fresh water we use still goes on agriculture, which is quite a surprising stat if, you have, if you're never in contact with farming. Pretty much everything we do relies on huge amounts of water. I think maybe we'll talk a bit about this later, but lots of processes that you might not expect go into making and collecting water, and it's actually quite an energy-intensive process as well. So it, it draws in even more other resources than itself. Do you think maybe this stuff is a little bit too invisible 
I mean, we came in with me sort of banging on about all the things we do write about instead of this, but do you think that we, we take it for granted a little bit because it's just, it's so seamless? Yeah, I think so. And also I think that's why the world reacts with kind of shock and horror when there are situations like you had in Detroit or even in Ireland where people's water is shut off and there's kind of controversy around water bills because the idea that that could happen, that you could be waiting in your suburban house for a truck to come with emergency water supplies that you would collect in a bucket is such an anathema to what we think of our modern life as being that I think it really frightens people. Mm. There's been a lot of slightly scary photographs coming out of a city called Flint in, in Michigan recently where they've been, basically they've accidentally poisoned the water supply, mm-hmm. um, which is which is not a great look for a city really, but all the, all the pictures are just people lugging around these enormous bottles of water. This is the most basic public service you expect before anything else is just completely broken down in one of the richest countries in the world yeah and it's almost like a a kind of primal fear that there's something in the water that the stuff that's meant to keep you clean and support all life on earth could end up being the thing that kind of poisons you or that kills you Mm. I don't know Basically, I think it's the precursor to, to like the collapse of civilization and something that looks like a zombie movie is really what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, Cheerfully. Yeah, which, which, which is not a link at all, but which I'm going to pretend it <laughs> is and try and ignore the political ramifications of this. We're going to hear now from an American activist who's been out to, to meet some nice people in Oregon, uh, where we're told actually it's all, in fact, about water. My name is Linda Tirado. I'm a poverty activist and an author from Obviously America. The reason that I'm relevant to this podcast episode is that I'm actually from the rural Rocky Mountain West, and I've recently been hanging out with some armed separatists in Oregon. And, And everybody thinks that that is just kind of like, oh, crazy armed white dudes. But really what it comes back to is this kind of strong sense of unrest throughout the Rocky Mountain region, because what you've got is is kind of a harsh landscape that, that millions of people try to make a living from, and it's running out of water. Like, to the point that our states are suing each other over, are we allowed to use the, the water from the river that flows through our state before it gets to another one? California, Utah, and Colorado are currently involved with lawsuits with each other. It's a federal felony in a lot of places in the West to, like, pick up water from the ground without having permission from the government. And so against that kind of apocalyptic resource war backdrop, that's where you're starting to see a lot of this unrest in the West. I think it's fair to say there's there's a lot to unpack there. Let's start with uh, the, the story you've been looking at in Oregon. Like, What do people think is going on there? What's the kind of perception of, of the siege in Oregon then? So basically what happened in Oregon is the two ranchers named uh, Dwight and Stephen Hammond were sent to jail for uh, setting a fire on their property that spilled over onto government land. They were sent to jail, served their time, came back out, and the government said that they didn't do enough time, so they were sent back to jail. That set off a protest movement in Harney County, Oregon, to which Ammon Bundy et al. and his crew kind of showed up and 
then took it to a whole new level where they went and they got guns. They took over this wildlife refuge. So who were um, the Bundys? Sorry. Was... Yeah. So the Bundys are ranchers from the West. Their dad is Cliven. He's from rural Nevada. Ammon was the leader. He's been, since been arrested. Um, he lives in Idaho. Ryan Bundy, his brother, who was shot by police and has been arrested, um, actually lives in my hometown of Cedar City, Utah. It's loosely affiliated with what we call the Patriot Network, which is basically the right wing, um, like the activist right wing. They're kind of libertarian, um, very pro-gun, kind of ex-military sorts. Um, and essentially what's happened here is that you've got a flashpoint, just like Ferguson was kind of a flashpoint for race relations in Harding County, Oregon, in the case of the Hammonds, for whatever reason, was a flashpoint for these guys on the right. And they kind of descended on the city and took over this wildlife refuge. And when people hear that somebody's taken over federal buildings, they tend to put that in a, in a city in their head. I cannot tell you how remote these six or seven outbuildings are. It's 40 miles even to the closest little town. Um, and the closest little town has 5,000 people of it in it, and it is the most populous place in the whole country. So that's kind of what we're talking about. It's it's the middle of nowhere. Mm. So this is, this is not the same as like people being holed up in like downtown Cincinnati or something. This is this, this is a couple I don't of huts. Think it's in a place in all of the UK that's as remote as this. Like I, I don't think there might be there might not be a place in in most of Western Europe as remote as this. Mm. Okay, so that, that changes the picture slightly. You say this is actually not about, um, you know, guns and freedom and all the kind of the, the, the headline things people talk about. It's actually sort of code for some uh, resource. Yeah, it's about who gets to control the resources. So when you hear about things like grazing permits and mineral rights and water rights, which is what this fight is actually about, does the federal government get to control how people use the land or do people get to control how they use their own property? And the way we do land in America is kind of split. You can own the land, but maybe not grazing and water rights. Somebody else could own the rights to the minerals and the water to be found underneath the land and the grass on top of it. And so you've got this kind of Byzantine 150, 200 year old system of these different contracts and these different ways we're doing these land rights. Um, And the government kind of changes those when they think that there's an environmental reason or when they think that there's a a tourism reason. Um, They just kind of come in and change it. It's gotten to the point where the government now owns 70% of the land in Harney County. In my home state of Utah during the 90s, Bill Clinton kind of signed half of the state into being federal property, which meant suddenly you're not allowed to use it for anything. You're not allowed to hunt on it. You're not allowed to fish on it. You're not allowed to, you know, anything. And they're doing it for preservation. But it is a huge problem for a bunch of locals that are already having trouble getting enough resources off the land that they themselves own. And then to be told that you can't use it for this, you can't use it for that there's the anger and and the resource wars that are coming i gotta tell you i'm a leftist i'm not a tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist i do believe there's going to be water wars because i have seen what life looks like when there's no water in your rivers and your lakes are going dry and your cattle start to die and you can't food like that's what it's like to live in the rockies at this point of the drought as as you said yourself it's kind of a, a completely alien level of population density from a, from a European point of view. There just aren't that many people out there. 
I've got in, a, in, in six or seven hundred square miles, there might only be a couple of people. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's I, it's almost impossible to explain to a European what the scale of America is. I guess what I'm wondering is, is, is there a reason for this? Like, is, is there is there kind of sound environmental reasons why it's it's easier to sort of build up a, a network of towns in, on the eastern seaboard than it is? when you get that far west, where there's mountains and deserts and wildernesses. Yeah, so the way we built America, um, the folks that settled the west were kind of rugged individuals. They moved to a harsh landscape because they didn't want anybody else to follow them. They, they basically wanted to be left alone. It was largely settled by Mormons who were actually uh, tortured, killed, and chased off of U.S. land four different times. So Utah was actually settled by a separatist uh, religious group that had been told the religion was unwelcome in America. So a, a good portion of that kind of ethos comes from that. We know the government actually is coming to get us. They do not have our best interests in mind, but we can make it out here. We can make it work out here. And, and you find that Two, there's this just amazing landscapes out there. I mean, it's, there is, there's nothing more beautiful than gorgeous red snow-capped mountains as far as the eye can see, going thousands of feet up into the sky. When that's where you live, it's hard not to see the face of God every day, man. So, you know, there's, there's that too. Just, it's gorgeous landscape. Why would you not live there? The trouble that we're running into is now you've got people that are from these kind of urban centers and, and we, we've got such overpopulation problems and such urban problems that they're moving out to the country but the land was never meant to support as many people as are moving in and that's what's kind of driving it into a flashpoint it's like all these folks from california moving up all these folks from washington and new york moving in because they come out for the winter to ski and they think they're going to stay and retire well the land won't support that many people you can only pipe so much water into the cities for your sewage pipes and your your, your potable drinking water so you know that's that's turning into a bit of a population pressure as well but really, what it comes back to is is the, the climate. My friends, it is changing. And those of us in the Rocky Mountain West, we we can tell you. Because suddenly, there where there was water before, there is none now. So when you say water wars, I mean, that's, kind of, that, that, that's a pretty evocative phrase. What are we actually talking about here? Do you literally mean... I, I, what I form is this conflict going to take? I literally mean a bunch of people with guns standing around a reservoir saying, you ain't taking this water. This belongs to people who live here. Okay, deer, so we're, we're, deer corporate logging interests, deer, you know, pleasure boaters, deer, whatever. Y'all ain't getting near this water. This belongs to us. Now, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but the thing in Oregon was largely sparked by the Hammonds going to jail. The Hammonds fight with the BLM was over water rights. So it's already moved to an armed combat in America. It's just that, I mean, like, we've got a civilian dead and another shot by the FBI. We've got a bunch of people in jail for conspiracy. And all of this already is over water rights on five acres of land. Is, is it just water or are there other resources that are going to spark you? As far as I'm concerned, water's the, the first and foremost of them, because without water, you've got nothing. The reason the government's been coming through and making so much of this federal land is to preserve it, because it is resource-rich. It's not, you know, lush, but there's plenty of, of ore of various sorts in the mountains. There's uranium to be found. There's, you know, all of these uh, gems, all of these precious metals, like, all of this stuff exists, um, not to mention fossil fuels that can be found. If the global economy collapses, 
businesses. And if we don't manage to pull out of that on the inside of, of a decade, you're going to be on a great recession, followed by a really, really under like underwater recovery, followed by another depression. And on top of that, you've got all of these resources becoming more and more precious. Well, yeah, that basically is is how conflict starts. Like that's that's the backdrop of the beginning of every war that's ever ripped apart humans in the history of humanity. Um, either somebody sleeps with somebody, or somebody wants something that belongs to somebody else. Like those are the two reasons we we get a war. I think that's the problem, and I, I think we've already seen it in Oregon, where people said, I mean, that was basically down to who owns this land and who gets to decide what to do with it. If that's not an armed conflict over resources, then I don't know what words mean. Well, on that cheerful and apocalyptic note, I'll say thank you, Linda. Absolutely. I love being a cheerful apocalyptic. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Apocalyptic sort. We should say that that conversation with Linda was actually recorded uh, at the end of January, so you know, events have, have moved on since then, and even, even as we're recording this, in fact, um, there, there is a publication, I think it's The Atlantic, that's running a live blog on events in Oregon, so... Yeah, literally anything could happen. Yeah, so, so you know, what we, we, we'll see if we were right about that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I found interesting about that conversation, though, is just this idea of... the the wilderness and, and the idea that you know out in the American West there is isolation on a level that we struggle to imagine in, in a European context and you know we think we talk a lot about living in a, in a very urbanized world now but if you look at a map of the world's population it is kind of concentrated in in a few particular areas that are and increasingly so actually that you would almost have thought that with the kind of rise of technology it would allow you to live anywhere with any resources and you know, collect water from the clouds, or whatever. But actually, what is increasingly obvious is that it's far more efficient to live in certain places. And actually, those places haven't changed since, as you mm. said, kind of the dawn of civilization. Yeah. So you get most of the world's biggest cities are well, disproportionately they're in South and East Asia, mm-hmm. um, Western Europe, or, or the East Coast of the United States, or, or South America to some extent. Um, another thing I was thinking in terms of cities and their water supplies actually is. I'm not sure there are many mega cities that are that far from the sea. Um, I've been trying to think about this. There's Kinshasa, which is in sent pretty much in the middle of Africa, mm-hmm. and Moscow is quite a long way inland. But after that, you've got maybe Paris is like what 150 miles. They're all yeah, and big rivers always. So I mean, even if you are inland, you have a river. It's yeah. I mean, going back to the, the conversation about cities growing on on rivers, both for, in terms of you know, generating food to feed their people, but also in terms of transport, I think it's incredibly difficult to think of a big city that isn't on a major water feature. So difficult that I can't, I can't think of any. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Go on, know, name one. Biggest, one, biggest city without one. I can't think of one. There's is 
No, but, it's gone. But I know, I know there is one or two, and I'm sure we'll, readers will but, <laughs> send yeah, in please, suggestions. Please do write in. Um, Bur- um, Birmingham doesn't have a river, as far as a significant river. But so. it has a huge canal system, yeah. so I mean, there is that. that supplies all of the same things. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, but you're right. I mean, the fact that most... But even though historically you kind of needed a natural um, you know, fresh water supply... It is possible to generate it with with technology these days if you are willing to put in that much energy. And there are cities in one region of the world that are really seeing how far they can push that one. Yeah, so kind of when you get to the Middle East, you have areas where you're literally living in the desert in temperatures that are kind of unimaginable to anyone from Europe. And um, yet people still do it. And I think that that's one sign that actually if you have a, a different resource or a different motivation um, people will try and live anywhere um, but yeah those cities are kind of using um, oil and energy to kind of get water despite the fact that there's no one readily available so I guess the big question about that is is that sustainable? My name is Karim Elgandi. I'm a sustainability consultant based here in London, and I am uh, also the founder uh, of a small um, advocacy um, initiative promoting sustainable cities in the Middle East. And when you talk about sustainable cities in the Middle East, one of the issues that comes up quite a lot in that conversation is is that of water. Is that right? Of course, yes. So water is a primary issue for us, um, those who are keen on sustainability in the Middle East. So let's kind of step back a bit and take a historical perspective here. My vision of the Middle East is generally of a fairly sort of dry region where perhaps I'd sort of assume that water had always been a, a problem for the, the urban centres there. Is, is that true? Well, it depends on what you define as the Middle East. I would say different parts of the Middle East did not really have, hist- historically did not have that problem. So uh, the Levant, the um, uh, Syria, uh, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel and Palestine tended to have plenty of water historically, uh, particularly because of the topography, the mountains, rainfall, etc. You get all these small rivers that provided water. So that was never really a problem. And you get the same situation also because of topography in Morocco and Algeria as well, which is a... Um, a separate region that has shares the same characteristics. Um, what we now describe as the Middle East uh, is mostly the Gulf. I mean, sometimes some of us mm-hmm. at least do that, refer, refer to the Gulf, which never really had any water and could never sustain any decent population sizes uh, until desalination came along. And, and then you also have the historic um, um, cradles of civilizations in Mesopotamia, on the uh, Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, and also on the Nile banks where you had continuous populations for thousands of years um, because there was plenty of water supply to maintain this. One of the things that talking to you in the past has made me realise is that the centre of gravity in the Middle East kind of shifts in the sort of mid to late 20th century in a way I think that we kind of sometimes forget in the West. And really this is the, the region centre of gravity moves from Egypt to, to what we now think of as the Gulf where you know, historically that's quite a sort of different and um, rather less less populated area. So to, to what extent is this kind of the water shortage problem new because suddenly people are just living in basically deserts? The shift of the centre of gravity is mostly an economical 
condition. There's, there's clearly a loss of economic power in the old powerhouses of the region, uh, which are mostly in the eastern Mediterranean, which has shifted quite a bit now to the, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. Um, the issue with water, I think, is region-wide. I think what we have seen uh, over the last uh, 50 years or so is rapid population rises, which almost by definition results in less water available per person. And that has happened, I think, across the region, Middle East and Northern Africa. What we also found was that much of the region has managed to find ways in which to manufacture water and, and to provide sufficient water resources. And the GCC has mostly done that through desalination um, and also through extraction of non-renewable um, aquifer water, as in the case of Saudi Arabia. So when you say the GCC, we're talking about the, the Gulf countries. Gulf Saudi, Cooperation Council. Kuwait, is, uh, the UAE. And oh, yeah, Oman and Bahrain as well. The big cities that tend to get most attention in in the Western media in, in, in the Middle Eastern region, I think, are, are generally places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Doha. It's these kind of, these clusters of skyscrapers that have appeared on the edges of, mm. of effectively desert in the last of the 30 or 40 years. Am I right in thinking that's kind of a sort of different relationship to the natural landscape than perhaps some of the, the more historic cities in the region? Absolutely, you're absolutely right. The, the historic cities of, of the region were not Doha, Abu Dhabi and Dubai didn't really exist uh, 100 years ago. Um, well, they did exist as really small settlements, but nothing like we, we, we recognize today. Um, in the case of Dubai, Doha and Abu Dhabi, I think what we saw was a substitution of one resource uh, by another. There's almost no water, no freshwater resources to sustain any kind of economic growth as we see today. But they've basically relied on the use of energy through desalination to turn seawater into freshwater. And that comes at a cost and also at an energy cost. A lot of the energy used in the, across the GCC region, I think, some 12% or so of the GCC energy use goes through to, into desalination itself. So it's intensive. It's also... Uh, it also has an impact on carbon emissions for the region, uh, which is the reason why you always get to see the GCC countries on the higher end of carbon emissions uh, charts. So, so basically what's going on is these, these countries are burning oil to make water to extract more oil, is that...? Uh, yes, to, to generate more energy, yes. It's, it's, an, it's an ironic thing, but yes, it's, um, it's, a, so it's the choice they made um, to spur economic growth, but... Uh, it cannot be sustained um, forever that way. I mean, that was that was going to be my next question. Actually, is you were, you work in sustainability? I mean, how how unsustainable is this? What's going to happen if these cities continue to grow at the pace they have? Are they going to be able to provide water for their for their people? They will try and find ways in which the process of making fresh water is more energy efficient. So, they'll, so there will be improvement and maturity to their industry. But ultimately, the oil will run out and the source of water will also run out uh, um, as a result so that it cannot be sustained forever using that process. If they do use another more sustainable resource such as solar energy to power their uh, desalination processes, then there may be, maybe that um, is more of a sustainable model toward going forward. So if, there's, if there is the solar energy to keep up the desalination process... I mean, will these cities be able to continue to, to thrive in the way they have, as long as they have that energy? Potentially, supply? yes. If the if the if technology is mature, yes. The technology is very um, very much in its infancy at the moment. But um, but yes, if that matures enough to be to be um, a, a way forward, then absolutely yes, I would say that um, 
that might be a solution. Presumably, sort of whole deserts full of solar panels are still some way off. So, I mean, are any of these are any of the cities in the region actually in serious danger of just just running out of water? Not in the not in the Gulf countries, but um, Sana'a, I think, in Yemen is basically uh, perilously close to running out of groundwater. They get very little rainfall, and the aquifers have been um, um, exploited uh, a little too much. I think their water table drops by two meters a year, which is really rapid. And I think we're talking next year when they run out of groundwater. I mean, I really struggle to imagine what that... When you say a city runs out of water, I can't imagine what that actually looks like. Is there any kind of precedent for this in, in the modern world? Well, there's the Easter Island story, uh, when they ran, ran out of... Um, would which I, is a similar story, similar story, running out of resources and moving, moving away, moving to another island. So we're, we're basically talking about a city dying. Well, have you, I don't know if you've been to Jordan. You know Petra. Uh, Petra is a story of running out of water. And, I, I don't know Petra. Uh, I'm afraid. Can tell well, us the story. The, the Nabataeans developed this elaborate architecture. It's all Roman inspired, and they found ways in which to source water to this uh, development in the middle of the desert. On a, on a desert ridge, and they ultimately ran out of water. And they, I suppose they either moved away or died. A cheery thought. To what extent is this... I mean, your, your business focuses very much on the Middle East, I think. But to what extent is this a problem specific to the region, and to what extent is it happening elsewhere? Well, the Middle East is one of the driest regions in the world, and it also has the lowest um, water resources in the world. So the, there is no region I can think of that is at that extreme. Uh, but you do get... Um, Similar situations um, developing when you get extreme drought, as in the case of California. We've been through a few years of uh, drought and uh, they've struggled quite a bit um, because that meant they had to resort to exploiting their their groundwater resources, which are also running low. So that's not a recipe for sustainable growth and they rely quite um, heavily on um, agriculture coming from the Central Valley in California as well. So that it has impact on food production. What's, I mean, is there any sign of a solution to the, the droughts in California? Uh, I, I don't have one, I'm afraid. But um, God, if you can't solve that, then what's, <laughs> why are you even here if you can't uh, fix a, a drought on the other side of the world? Okay, okay. One more, one more question. It always feels to me like the, the the big cities of the Gulf, like Dubai, Doha, Abu Dhabi, they're kind of all competing to be these kind of regional Singapore. Hong Kong type places where like okay, okay the business at the moment is mainly oil but I think the idea is to kind of get their service economy to such a point that even when the oil runs out they've still got reasonably rich economies to live on mm. the, the, the flaw in this model to my mind is can you really have three or four cities all doing this in quite close proximity like do you think is the region just going to have too many of these places you can't have three hubs at close proximity but you can have three diversified cities at the moment um, only of these three, only Dubai is uh, has a fairly diverse economy, and, and, and uh, as a result, the UAE economy as a whole has improved in terms of its uh, diversification away from oil. Doha is not in the same place because they are still heavily reliant on exporting gas to the world, including this country. And is is, is Doha sort of just a bit behind the curve, or is it doing something completely different? Um, no, D- Dubai is the unique one. I think Dubai never really had any oil resources, so it's mm-hmm. uh, so it started from a different position. But the, I think they're all very aware of the need for diversification. It's just not a very easy thing to do. So. Karim, thank you very much. Thank you. So from not enough water to far too much of it, our map of the week this week is from a guy called Jeffrey Lynn, 
who basically used topographical information to figure out what exactly would happen if and when all of the polar ice caps melt, which, as we know, is happening. Um, and basically, cities are on bodies of water, as we've been discussing, so this means that sea rises are going to be fairly catastrophic. Um, so what can you see, John? So we've got the islands of, of Portland, Oregon, which is um, a very nice city, which is convenient for... for, for Canoeists. Yeah, <laughs> be a great place to live if you're on high ground. Um, Seattle is also a selection of islands. and um, I mean, Los Angeles is basically gone. Um, yeah, but w- w- what I find interesting about this is, like, this is not unique. This, this is not, like, th- this is going to happen to, as we were discussing earlier, most of the world's major cities. And therefore 70% of its population. Yeah, something... I mean, like, the, the, the worst-case scenario is still going to hit, I think, Bangladesh is the, is the country where you've got the, the worst mix of incredibly high population density and incredibly low-lying land. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, like, I mean, even here in London, the Thames Barrier, which was ele- erected in the early 80s, I think, to kind of protect, protect the city centre from storm surges up the River Thames... I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something ridiculous, like 90% of the times it's ever been raised were in the course of, like, the time since 2013 or something something of that order of magnitude. It's like the things that we don't really talk about, but they're a little bit scary when you think too much about it. And there's basically a whole new breed of, I mean, most of it is still speculation as opposed to real hard and fast plans, but a whole new breed of infrastructure planning, which is for giant islands that you might build in front of your city in the bay so that it doesn't get flooded or entire new cities or i mean most of these things are combinations of places where people can live but also something that will just break the floodwaters <laughs> if and when they come and i mean also climate change will come alongside loads of other natural disasters so those things will also affect cities far more than anywhere else mm, i think i'm right in saying that in um, new york there's a plan to to use oysters around staten island yeah, as a flood defence. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, there's, also, there's a lot of ideas everywhere, and they're interesting, but also terrifying in their existence. So, in the event that we uh, make it through the next couple of weeks, we'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed, and produced by Royfield Brown. Our theme music is "Dust from the Stars" by Charlie Charles. You also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove and Embryonic Waves, composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.